Welcome to Deep Dive Coaching for Creatives with me, Coach Cammie. In each episode, I'll be covering the basics of deep inner work, the hardest and most important work you can possibly do for yourself. I have been where you are, stuck with self-limiting beliefs and an inner critic on overdrive and no idea how to get past them. I've done this work on myself, for myself. I know how hard it is, but I want to make it easier for you and help you become your best self. You deserve it. My guest today is the amazing Leslie Barliant. She is a writing coach, a writer, a creative evangelist, and her clients seem to call her a writing whisperer, and I can't wait for you to learn more about her. Welcome, Leslie. Thank you so much for having me, Cami. I'm so excited to talk to you and to be here and talk to your audience. I want to jump right in and talk about a subject I'm super interested in. I just listened to a podcast with Mel Robbins and Dr. Hyman about the brain-body connection. It affirmed everything I thought I knew about the brain-body connection. And they talk about all the reasons why what you eat is how you feel. I want us to dive in here. Oh, interesting. Everything from anxiety to asthma to everything is related to what we're eating and how we're moving our body or not, how we're sleeping oh, or not. But basically, it's doing, instead of a Whole30, you're doing 10 days. Are you familiar with Whole30? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you do that for 10 days and notice how you feel. I'm like, well, yeah, of course you're going to feel better because yeah. everything, everything is related to the well, fuel. It's chemistry, right? Yeah. So you put things in. Yeah. There's a chemical soup that happens. Yeah. You know. It's related to how much inflammation we're causing our bodies. And you think about if I'm outside and my neighbor's got a leather leaf viburnum and it's beautiful. And I used to have one in my backyard until I touched it. And I realized, oh, we can't have this in the yard. <laughs> Horrible rash on my arms yeah. and my hands and whatnot. And it's like, okay, that's kind of what's happening on the inside of our bodies. This swelling and inflammation and, and reactions we're having, and they're not a true allergy, but our bodies are responding like, eh, I don't like this. But we can't see it. Our bodies are telling us, but we're not connecting the dots. It's like Right. Well, we, we treat symptoms, not causes, right? Yeah. So also, I had a ballet teacher when I was much younger who introduced me to the idea that we store memory, not just in our brains, but in our bodies. And the most sort of traumatic are stored in various places in our bodies. And she used to do something called floor bar, which was very like deep stretch. And she said, invariably you'll, you'll burst into tears and you won't know why if you're doing it right. And like that, I remember the first time it happened to me and I was like, like, what is, what is there, mm-hmm. you know? And that always stuck with me that we think of emotion feeling as being a brain thing, but actually our whole body is involved and we don't really understand the mechanisms there, right? We, we have limited understanding, I would say of the mechanisms there and what does that mean then to access some of that? And yeah, yeah, very interesting. I am still on the journey of figuring out what that means. And 
And how do I heal myself by healing my body and letting those those memories out and letting them go? Yeah, and I think that's, to me, that's sort of the tie-in to creativity, to writing, to all of it. So again, we often focus on the physical aspect of it, right? Like, I physically feel this way. So it must be something physical. I need a pill. I need to exercise differently. I need to eat differently, which may all be true. But there's also like, what is, what are the stories that are locked inside you that instead of being creative fuel, you're using, are actually fueling your discontent, your feeling of utsiness, your feeling of sadness, your feeling of volatility, whatever it is. I used to, I had a, a woman I worked with used to say, she was really encouraged people to brag their successes. And she used to say, if you don't digest it, it turns into shit. <laughs> right? Like so obvious, but it's true about our thoughts, our feelings, our experiences, our traumas, like all of it. I, I spoke to a friend yesterday who went through a very traumatic experience when she was a teenager and it's 40 years later. And she's like, I don't know why I can't stop crying about it. It's suddenly resurfaced. And then we started talking and what turned out was she never talked to us about it. Yeah. It's it just sits still there. in there. Right. Like she doesn't write about it. She doesn't talk about it. She doesn't, she's starting to do more art around it. Like it's moving. And that to me is the power of creativity, the power of writing, the power of expression. Yeah. Because it is all tied together. Yeah. It's processing it. Yeah. That sounds very much like the work of Dr. Bessel van der Kolk, the, the author of The Body Keeps the Score. Yeah. Yeah. That was a slog of a read, a slog of a read, <laughs> but packed with juicy, good information. And then there's another book that came out just in 2021 from Dr. Bruce Perry, and it's co-authored by Oprah Winfrey, and he takes the work of Dr. Bessel van der Kolk and makes it digestible and takes it another step further. And it's him talking about, you know, this is what happens precognition when when you're still in the womb, when you're just born, when you're still building these millions of neural networks every day, it establishes your worldview, your environment and your your level of nurturing and care dictates where your neural pathways need to grow. And Oprah Winfrey chimes in, and it's nice because inside the book, all of Oprah's words are blue. They're written in blue and all of his are black. But she says, okay, that means when I was seven years old and blah, blah, blah happened to me, then that means I was blah, blah, blah. So it's every piece of information he gives is put into an example by Oprah, and it's very, very digestible. And the book is called What okay. Happened to You? Oh, interesting. Instead of what's wrong with you, it's what happened to you, because that's the gist of our, the the root of all of our suffering is what happened to you that you haven't processed yet, that you're still yeah. in deal with it mode. I always wonder too about like interpretation, right? So like, this has always struck me that you can interpret, you know, X is the, the, it's the initial event that led to all these things, right? It's, it's X. It's the time 
my mother yelled at me over getting my period and that sent me on a trajectory of, you know what I mean? It's like, could be anything, right? So we're, our, our brain is going, well, this to this, to this, to this, to this. And it hit me one day, like, but what if that's not right? Like, what if there was something precognition, pre whatever that altered the way the mother relates to the child that had nothing to do with the child really what if it was because the child was deathly ill and in the hospital and the mother pulled away just slightly so that in case she lost the child, it might hurt a little less. And that's what set them on the path of exactly. having a contentious relationship. And that it's until we start to explore those stories. And in, in my world, that's often through writing that we understand that maybe the connections we're making are just the way we frame it. You know, I talk about this difference between getting at the truth of something and something being true. <laughs> Nicely put. Right? And I think in in writing, particularly in the kind of writing that I coach people into, it is about getting to the truth of something, whether or not it's true. Yeah. Yeah. And and I I completely agree that the the way we see things is determined by our tools and our our life experience up to that moment. Just because it's 30 years ago or five years ago or 60 years ago, and now we can see it differently, it doesn't mean that we that it that it landed any different. We can go back and reframe it. We can say, all right, now I understand that because this happened or that something something happened, that in that moment because I didn't have the tools to deal with it or the language to rationalize or explain it or, or process it, that it became trauma. And it might be a big T trauma or a little T trauma that it's, and, and that's defined by, I didn't have the tools necessary at the time. And if we can go back at, you know, look back at it, at that event in the past and reframe it with who we are now that's when healing happens. That's when, whether we're looking back at it in meditation or in thought or in art or in writing, the the medium doesn't matter. It's the ability to reframe the event with the tools and the language that you have now. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, I, I think of two things. One is I do believe that when you take these experiences, good, bad, or indifferent, and you use them as creative fuel, it's just in that act of creativity that you transform your relationship to the thing itself, to the event itself, to the experience, right? Because it goes from being something that happened to you to something that you took and you propelled into something creative and often beautiful, even if the experience itself was traumatic and painful, you will feel differently, right? You're you're less the subject of it, you become the author of your own story, right? So yeah. e even in a fictionalized version of it, it becomes this fuel rather than this thing that sits on you. Yeah. It's a precipitating event of all the other mm -hmm. things you, you know, reprimand yourself about or feel bad about or feel victimized by, right? So there's that piece of it. I once um, had a, a writer who was writing a story about a, a woman getting divorced and it's pretty much autobiographical. And I said, 
okay, write the same story from the perspective of the husband. And she did. And she said she got so much insight into what had actually happened in their marriage. And all the stories she had told herself about it kind of evaporated into this, like, I can see so clearly now what actually happened. And she found it like liberating and just exciting. Beautiful. I've been able to see that differently. And I, I think there's a lot, you know, I often will ask folks to sort of, so what would that story be from the perspective of a different character in the story? How would they tell the story? How would they see the story? And, you know, one of the things I always say, you know, the, the trap of writing memoir and we've all read them are those memoirs where it's like the characters get very flattened, good guys and bad guys, so that you can get the reader or the listener on your side. Mm -hmm. And in reality, families and relationships are complex and people are complex. So characters need to be complex. Yeah. You know, I think of Mommy Dearest, right? This very oh, flat version. Yes. Versus something like um, The Glass Castle, where her parents are objectively terrible, but also loving. And she you get all of it, right? You get, there's compassion for everybody in yeah. the, the memoir. And I think that's so important. And sometimes it takes looking at it from a different perspective to get to that compassion. Yeah, very Even much so. for oneself. Very much so. You have to be able to be the observer and not completely absorbed and overwhelmed by... XYZ story. Yeah, I've been thinking about that a lot too. That there's these two very important arts in creativity and in that sort of translate. It's creativity, it's human relationships, it's healing, it's all of it to be an active listener and an active observer. Yeah. And I, in, and in the part of healing, I think we need to be that part to be that for ourselves. Yeah. To be an active listener and an active observer of what's happening in our own head, in our own heart. Yeah. And in our own lives around us yeah. to be open. You know, it's it's such a hard skill. They're both hard skills, I think, to develop. Yeah. It takes practice. Um, a lifelong yeah. practice. <laughs> yeah. And my experience with being an active listener is I'm very good at it in certain situations and terrible at it in others. <laughs> Give me and, an example. Give me an example. So I'm very good at it in writing classes. I'm an excellent active listener. I can really pick up on things, even that the writer themselves didn't realize they were doing or saying. I can find the places where they can go deeper. I can find all that. But like, I'm having an argument with my husband. I don't care what he has to say i'm not listening i am just waiting to make my point right so like there are ways in which we can the the key i think the trick is to expand those places like take the same skill that you apply in certain parts of your life and expand to others and i had this conversation with um in my part of what i do is i, I run a sales team for a political tech company and one of the um, more junior people was saying something about having trouble with cold calls. They'll just say, like, send me information, and then he'll be like, okay, um, rather than probe a little deeper. And so I used the example of, like, okay, but let's pretend you're on the phone with your friend, and your friend is really harried. And they're like, I can't talk right now. I'm so stressed out. Work is killing me. 
you know, can you just, can you bring me dinner? You wouldn't be like, yeah, sure. And hang up. You would say, I would be happy to bring you dinner. What would you like? Do you want the burger with fries? Would you like that medium or well done? Great. What would be a good time for me to bring you dinner? Not because you're being like annoying, but because you actually want to be helpful and bring friend dinner and bring them the dinner they want at the time they can eat it. Yeah. Like, why do we treat some relationships, including relationships with ourselves? And I am as much guilty of this as anybody differently than we we treat other relationships. Yeah, that is that is the age old question. How, how is it that we can talk to ourselves in such a negative way that if we, if we treated our best friend that way, they tell us to take a hike. Yeah. Yeah. And we, we don't treat people we love that way. We don't, we treat our pets like, I mean, this is another great example, right? (laughs) My kitty cats can do no wrong. I love them. They're just snuggle bugs and they do terrible things. (laughs) They knock things over, they make a mess, they go to the bathroom outside the litter box, they leave mouse things, you know, like, but I just love them. And to me, they're just being kitty cats, right? When they dig in the plants, they're just being kitty cats. And I don't have a negative reaction to that. Whereas like a human person who I love doing certain things, I'm like, why are you doing that? You have higher expectations. Yeah. But I also approached the kitty cats just from a place of love. But I will stay up all night berating myself for a mistake I made. Right? So it's like, where, you know, how do we work through some of that? And what I've found is like that skill set in, in art, in writing, in creative endeavors of that active listening, active observation. And I think the third part is that love and compassion for all the characters in it. No, oh, I love that you call them characters. All the characters in your life, all the characters in your head. <laughs> all the characters in your stories, right? Love and compassion for all the characters is how we start to get there. Oh, I love that. You said something earlier I want to revisit. You said love is a creative endeavor. Can you go deeper into that? To me... It's fraught, much like creativity is, right? It You can get blocked, much like you feel blocked. I don't re- really actually believe in writer's block, but you can feel blocked, much like in creativity. And also you are taking all the fuels of your life, your trauma, your experiences, your beauty, your all of it. And you're applying it in relationship to another person. And that takes bravery the way creativity does, but it also takes being present in a way that allows you to take in what is actually coming at you and give back what you actually mean. It sounds like you're saying it's being more present. It is being present. It is that act of creative observation, I mean, of active observation, active listening all the time when, when we're doing it in a way that is fulfilling and it's hard. It is also hard. 
love is building something. I mean, I think we get in the media, you know, I think of all the movies where they finally kiss and then it's the end. That's just the beginning. Right? Like that's the big culmination is like they get together. Well, that's the but beginning. That's where that it gets really messy. <laughs> it's everything that comes after, you know, much like for, I think for a long time and maybe still we sort of fetishized pregnancy much over like child rearing. So you got to do all these things right in this like 10 month period. And then you're on your own, do what you want. And I think we have fetishized in some ways and focused a lot on how to get love, but not how to be in love and not how to be love and not how to, and listen, I, I don't have an answer for what, any of that is right. I struggle <laughs> my own relationships, but in my own self-love, right. But what I can see in the medium that I focus on mostly, which is writing the, that when you start to explore some of these things in writing, you get clarity that you then bring into your relationships and into other aspects of your life. And much like creativity, like we're all works in progress. And with a piece of art or a piece of writing or anything, you can't control what your audience is taking in. You can give them the breadcrumbs, but they also bring their own imprint onto it. And it's this beautiful thing, actually, that once out in the world, any work of art, whatever kind of art it is, photography, writing, sculpture, painting, becomes like a collective experience and co-authored in a way mm -hmm. and writers at first get really mad about that because it's like i want people to know what i mean but love is like that too how you put something out is not necessarily how somebody takes it in and you can't control that and yeah. what you have to be able to do is get really curious yeah. about how you're presenting how somebody else is taking it in and how you're merging those things all together yeah, I, I one of the lessons I learned with my mentor is that in the healing process, you recognize that your parents loved you the best they could. It may have been imperfectly. Yeah. And even if it was perfectly given, it was imperfectly received because those two gears never line up perfectly. Right. That love is never perfectly given and perfectly received. There's the, the experience of being human is messy. And there's going to be a disconnect somewhere. So if you recognize intent as opposed to delivery method or level of poetry or, you know, level of execution, it's not going to be perfect. That everyone yeah. around you loves imperfectly. To me, there's, there's also like two sides to that, right? So there's getting right with what is and finding the rightness, right? Somebody said this to me. So my, I live in an old house and it, we've been renovating by we, I mean my husband. And I have a tendency to look at what is unfinished. And my friend was over the other day and she, I, she they built their house as well. Um, and I said, was it hard for you while it was going on? She said, no, because I just kept looking at what was completed and you need to do that too. And it's really shifted like, this anxiety that I've had about mm -hmm. like, oh my God, I can't take this to like, oh, but look at that. Look at my dining room. It looks so pretty. Mm -hmm. And to really like focus on what is on the other hand, I had um, 
somebody I worked with many years ago who I adored, who once said, don't confuse effort with results. Oh, that's beautiful. And it always stuck with me. Yeah. Because I've heard people say, don't confuse intent with results. But there's also this thing we do where it's like, I tried. I tried really hard. I, I put so much effort into this. Is that like, where, what, where do we want to focus? I mean, sometimes you do want to focus on effort and say, I really appreciate all the effort you put into this. And you need to talk about the results. Yeah. yeah. Or I appreciate that your intention was to be helpful. And we need to talk about the fact that that wasn't the help that I asked for or needed. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So it's like, I think there's like both sides to it and it's finding that balance in both how you observe it and then how you unpack it. Yeah, definitely. I love the fact that you mentioned that your friend looks at everything in their house that is finished and everything that looks good. And that to me is a completely, that's an abundant mindset. That's focusing on everything you do have, focusing on everything that is working and looking at everything you don't have or looking at everything that's not working or that's broken. It needs to be fixed. And that's a scarcity mindset. Mm-hmm. And as we look not only at our surroundings, but at our internal landscape, we can say, well, I need to lose weight. I need to be more positive. I need to I need to start being more consistent with my writing or my creativity or whatever. And to me, it's kind of a destructive mindset because it's only drawing to you energetically everything that you're paying attention to, which isn't the things that are not working. There is a study done at Harvard and they paid students to play Tetris for a week and at the, for several hours a day. At the end of the week, they interviewed them. They said, what did you notice? They said, oh, my gosh, I see Tetris shapes everywhere. Cognitively, they grew new neural networks to start to identify these Tetris shapes. So in the grocery store, if these cans go over here and the boxes go here, then there's no gaps. Or in the parking lot, if I look down from this window, then I see all these cars and that move and then they there would be no spaces. So it's proof positive that what we're focusing on, we get more of. And if we're stewing saying, I'm so depressed or I'm so anxious or the dishes are never going to get clean, the laundry's never going to get done, this house is never going to get renovated, I'm never going to find the right job, then that's what your inner that's where your energy is going. That's where your focus is going. And that's what you're going to get more of. But if you flip that and it's, I tell my clients, it's a choice and it's day to day and it's moment to moment. And you, unfortunately you have to make that decision over and over and over again. But if you already know that you really, really want to default to an abundant mindset or a growth mindset or a love mindset, then the decision you only, you only have to make it once. Mm -hmm. And you just have to remind yourself, Oh yeah, I've chosen love. I've chosen love already. All right. So love and abundant means what do I have? Well, this room is, it's bright. You know, it, it has a north window. So the light's always the same. Um, my plant that I have hanging in the window is still alive, even though I haven't watered it in a month. And, you know, and you, you just start to snowball into everything and your brain actually adapts. Your brain says, oh, we're looking for things to be grateful for. Great. Somebody so, likened I mean- it to having you are the rider. Your body is the horse. Right. So like taking this back to writing, that's what I would call deep description. You know, my teacher, Jack Grapes, used to call image moment sort of active observation, right? So we humans have this incredible thing 
language. Very complex language. Other other animals have language, but we have this very complex language. There are languages in the world that have a different word for when you're sad in a nostalgic way versus sad in a grieving way. But many of us in our language spend a lot of time shorthanding things, right? So it's like, I'm sad, I'm mad, I'm this, I'm that. And writers will often early on in their careers also do that thinking, well, let the reader fill in what that looks like or means. But the reality is the more specific you are, the more connection points people have, right? The more specific you are in between the moments of action and dialogue with that deep description, that is where a reader or listener can connect. And it is also true in life, right? So it's like noticing what is around you and taking that in, right? So seeing like the yellow wall in my dining room that we redid three times in plaster to get the right yellow and now it is perfect is very different than just the wall is finished. It's this bright cherry yellow wall that's got a little hint of orange in it so it's not too lemony and it brightens up the whole room and it took us three tries to get the right plaster but my husband did it every single time when I said it's not quite right, I don't like it, he was willing to do it again. That is a different thing than the wall is finished. And, you know, in some way, I often say, you know, the writer's like, this is not therapy and I'm not a therapist. However, there are very therapeutic (laughs) values to doing this work that you will experience in so many aspects of your life because it will open you up to noticing not just that the wall is done, but like what's special about it, what's unique about it. And I'm, I'm constantly telling like, Okay, I, I worked on this short, I've worked on a couple of short films as a story editor. And one of the things we did in the process of writing these is I'm constantly asking, like, describe that, tell me more about that. The first one had no dialogue, but it also won an award for best screenplay because we got so granular with, okay, he's nervous. How, do, how are we going to show nervous here? And it got down to the way he would pull on the cuff of his sleeve, the way she would gather the folds of her dress, because it's all of those things in between that get at what our real emotional state is and what really matters. And we often hyper-focus on the things that don't mm-hmm. because they're right in front of us mm-hmm. yeah, and not the things that do. Yeah. What happens when self-doubt creeps in? <laughs> so I think we talked about this, that I used to have a persona I called the self-doubt assassin. And I, it really came from a couple of things. One is I studied Buddhism for many years. And I always liked the idea that you sort of take these kind of harsh, hostile things like poison and like let the poison be the medicine. And I was like, I'm going to be the self-doubt assassin. I'm going to assassinate self-doubt which was very aspirational, but it also, it was about that focus that I have throughout my life had a, had had a habit of kind of my hamster wheel churning. Uh, They call the, you know, some people call it like the, the diary of grievances and mine was like the diary of mistakes. Right. (laughs) And it could be like three in the morning and something I had done 
35 years ago that was just slightly stupid, right? Or slightly embarrassing. And the diary of mistakes would just start building and building and building and building and building. And I was like, I, I started to imagine myself as this like assassin with like a, often a sword, because I don't like guns, often a sword, like going after that particular one and then going after the next one, then going after the next one is sort of this visual image of myself pulling it apart because what happens is it snowballs into this giant thing of I am terrible, I am no good, I am an embarrassment, I am, not that it ever got that deep, dark for me, but I could see where it was going and I could see how it was holding me back. That was the big thing for me. It was holding me back in my career. It was holding me back in my relationships. It was holding me back because there was this fear, right? This fear, I'm going to do something stupid again or say something stupid again or embarrass myself or fail. And if I fail again, then that's just going to be more information that I'm just a failure. So I can't risk failing again because then I'm a failure. And one of the things I kept telling myself is like, and I've said this to many people over the years who've been like heartbroken. Listen, all relationships are failures until one isn't. <laughs> Love that. Like, stop saying I'm bad at relationships or I can't have a relationship or I'll never have a All, everybody you know has had failed relationships. Everybody you know. Yeah, there it's experiment. Yeah. There does it make you a failure? Yeah. Yeah, it's an experiment and and with every relationship, with every experiment, with everything you try, what comes out in the end is just information and how you choose to view it, whether it's that the that the thing is a failure, whether you're a failure, whether, you know, you got a pearl out of the steaming pile of shit is entirely up to you. Yeah. I mean, one of the things I did when I was dating, when I was living in LA and it, it got pretty depressing for me, you know, I was in my thirties. I had a kid, um, actually thirties and forties had a kid. Uh, it just felt like it, it was just getting worse and worse. And I didn't want to like do online dating. I found that uncomfortable, but I decided to do it. And then I was like, how am I going to make this pleasurable in some way? And because I'm a writer, I was like, oh, I'll write about it. Well, then what started happening was I got really excited when things started to go kind of off the rails <laughs> because I knew it would be a good story and I knew I could write it funny. Then it got to the point where I started like trying to sort of push things, oh, not no. push them off the rails, but like if it was going off the rails, whereas normally I would have bailed and felt icky I stuck it out kind of see where it would go so at one point there was a guy who you know told me he was like he had a family foundation he was Italian all of a sudden and when we actually met it was very clear he was likely homeless and lovely person whatever and had asked me to meet him at an art gallery because he didn't have any money and there was free food and wine and you know whatever and I think in the past I would have just like you know like clenched up but instead, I was like, this is going to be a great story. Let's see where it goes. So we ended up spending the whole day together. We went to the art gallery. We went to the museum. He's interesting. Never saw him again. That was totally fine. But the story has always stuck with me 
that I actually had a fun day. You allowed yourself to. Right. So it's all about like, again, it goes back to is something going to be, you know, a heavy weight that sits on my heart or is it going to be fuel in some way in in my world? Is it going to be fuel for writing or some kind of creative endeavor or personal growth or whatever it is? Or is it just going to be another confirmation that I'll never find love? Right. Like, Uh you know, and I remember this people saying to me, why are you moving to upstate New York? You'll never find a man there. And I was like, I have been in L.A. for 14 years and I am single. And also that's not like the end all and be all. And I want to move. And, you know, my story with my husband is very improbable because we actually met in L.A. and started dating five days before I moved. (laughs) What are the odds? What are the odds? We'd known each other for many years, but we'd never gone out until five days before I moved. So, you know. 3,000 miles away. So it's like that, what does that tell me? It's like in all things, you don't know what is coming. And again, taking this back to right, like we always believe past is prologue, even when we have definitive proof that it isn't. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I like to see the past as, well, the, the entire scenario of time is, We are passengers in a one-person canoe that's big enough to fit our bodies. We are facing upstream where the river has come from, and we can see beside us, and we can see upstream and beautiful. We cannot see downstream. We can't see behind us. Right. We can tell by what the water is doing around us what might be coming. We, you know, we might be able to hear something, maybe, for paying attention, but otherwise we don't have a view of what's coming. <laughs> right. And and that can be terrifying, but that could also be magical because mm-hmm. there is the you don't you and and getting back to your earlier point, it's like where you put your attention. You can say, I don't know if this will last, and I don't know if this will pan out, and I don't know if this will work, and I don't know if this will go anywhere, and I don't know. Or you could say, I don't know if this is going to be huge. I don't know if this is going to be. So, I mean, I go back to those short films. She never made a film before. I'd never made a film before. I did at some point think like, I should talk her out of this. This is like a very, she's spending a lot of money on this and, you know, whatever. Neither of us knew quite what we were doing other than she had a vision she felt very strongly about and I felt I could help her. And then when the first one won 50 awards, we're like, my God. And also maybe this is a fluke. And now the second one has won like 23 awards in two weeks. So she always held that like, maybe this will go somewhere. And guess what? It did. And what I held on to was I can help her make the best film that she can make. Mm -hmm. I think that's how we show up as our best selves is when we are showing up in service to others. Exactly. And I think, it, you know, for, for your listeners who are like me, I spent a big part of my life going, I shouldn't try that because it will probably never. Yeah. I shouldn't waste my time because it will probably never. I shouldn't whatever, because that will, you know, how will I get to the next thing? Yeah. And the only waste of time is talking yourself out of things that your heart feels pulled toward. Yes, exactly. You can should yourself to death. 
You can shoot yeah. yourself into a really small and dissatisfying life. And you can also shouldn't yourself into that, right? Uh-huh. Like, yeah, anything you know. that 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 says I should, I shouldn't, I'll never. Um, those limiting words that are judgment calls, they're opinions mm-hmm. and not facts. Limit your ability to see what might be when you can lean into curiosity instead and say, hmm, how might I support my friend in making this creative thing possible? How might I support myself in a new way? How might I create some new opportunities for myself based on my skills or my interests or what my heart is saying? That, that whole I, leaning into curiosity is a superpower exactly. that can can take away the the roadblocks of should and shouldn'ts. It's funny because my, my word for this year was curiosity because I realized that that in writing, that is a very important skill to get very curious about your characters, even if one of them is you. And also in life to, to approach things with curiosity rather than fear or, you know, put all this tightness around it, but to just be open and curious to what might happen Mm -hmm. and allow yourself room. I used to do this when I started my first business, I did this exercise where the person I was starting with, we went down the path of what's the worst thing that could happen. Mm -hmm. I take it all the way down. So it's like, what's the worst thing that can happen? We're not successful. Lose my house have to move in with my parents. Then we'll get closer. Like we kept <laughs> finding these ways to take it to a place where we're like, it's not so bad. And it gave us the bravery to do it and kind of plow ahead because we'd already, rather than just some nebulous, like something terrible might happen, we already knew, you know, we're going to be okay. Mm-hmm. And it's worth moving forward with something, you know, we've been wanting to do. So I I think there's always ways to kind of trick your brain. And we do that a lot in writing, right? We have to trick our brain into exploring character more deeply, taking a story you think you know really well and looking at it from another perspective, Mm -hmm. opening ourselves up to, to see things differently. And then the big trick is to apply that to ourselves. Yeah. That's the hardest part. <laughs> when did you start on your inner journey? When when did you start recognizing things that maybe the people around you did not? I feel like always I I was a very intuitive kid. And the first experience I had with that was not positive. So my first experience with that was I, as a very young child, could anticipate, I anticipated a couple of people that were very close in my family dying. And I was very young. Just a feeling. And then, you know, I'd get a feeling walking home from school and then I'd get home and hear so-and-so died. And so I started to really get curious in a way about like, do what is that sixth sense? Like I was always curious about kind of non-traditional things in that way from very early young age, magic and potions and witchcraft. And I was in a special 
because I was such an advanced reader, I was in a special program where I got to write myths. Oh, how fun. Very young. Again, like super young. And read very early. You know, there's just a lot of things. But I also had some real difficulties growing up. And I think first in high school, kind of searching for anchors to help me move things through my body and hopefully move things emotionally. And for me, that was dance and expression through dance. And I think that was part of start of the journey. And then I had that ballet teacher who was, she hooked me up with an acupuncturist who ran, had a magazine called Woman of Power. And she was like a guru. And I realized I'm very attracted to all this this world, right? But I also am very rational. So like, I like to say I'm one woo. I'm not woo woo, I'm one woo. (laughs) I'm I'm also very science rational, right? Like my dad was a scientist, I'm very science. And so finding those intersections of science and what we don't yet know or we don't yet have a grasp on has always spoken to me. And then starting to study different modalities Judaism, Buddhism, studying with people who were sort of leaders in personal growth, personal development, finding the thing, studying writing with some really incredible teachers who had. Yeah, Jack Grapes. Hello. Jack, amazing. Like methods for really getting deep. Yeah. I think Jack was my, has been my favorite teacher ever. He's just genius. But also other teachers that I studied with. Jackie Parker also got me into open eye meditation, right? She's a novelist, but she's also like, so it's always finding. Wait, wait, wait. Open eye meditation. I've not heard of that. What is yeah, that? Yeah, it's where you're not, your eyes are open while you're meditating and you're locking eyes. Oh, with someone and else. You, mm-hmm. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Yeah. Like I've always, and, and my, the Lama, who I, I, I still to this day feel the most connected with, is also a really incredible um, actress named Lindsay Krauss. So I've, I've always gravitated to people of art and something more. It's like creativity and there's a personal growth aspect to it. And so I, it's kind of been with me, I feel like, my whole life. And also searching for what works for me, because I've also found that gurus can be very dangerous and is not a thing that should probably exist. Take what you need, leave the rest. Yep. And the phrase that I had growing up was bump off and learn. Yeah. Yeah. And, and take what you need and, and package it in a way that works for you and might work for others. Right. Like that's, I feel like, so much of all of that makes its way into how I teach writing, how I approach creativity, how I work with clients, even how I approach sales. Like it all is part of it. I do think when when life becomes a journey of exploration, whether you're excavating for ruins or excavating your interior life or excavating characters. I mean, I almost describe what I do in writing as helping excavate a piece of work. There's joy in that, Mm -hmm. right? There's joy in discovery. There's joy in 
opening up new thoughts and ideas and pathways and ways. And listen, I have not mastered it. (laughs) We're all on the journey. I am as much a student as a teacher in this realm, which is why, you know, I work with Rochelle Seltzer because one of the stories I've always told myself is I, I can't draw. Mm -hmm. I'm not a good artist in that way, but I, I loved it as a kid. Mm -hmm. So where did I get that from? Yeah. And is that true? And what if I just do it anyway? Yeah. You know, my first foray with her at one at the first retreat I did with her, I got really anxious around some of the drawing and I kept saying, I can't draw. I'm not good at this. I was so anxious. But by the second one, I was like, oh, my God, I can't wait for this part. Uh And now my husband and I are going to an art retreat for a couple of days in Virginia where we are going to focus on painting. Nice. So it's like there are always going to be stories we tell ourselves. They do not need to own us. We can own them. Yeah. One of the ways you own them is by expressing them and examining them differently. Yeah. I love the idea that we're not cooked at a certain point. (laughs) You hear that all the time, like they're too old to change. Or I feel like, you know, we decide that people are cooked at a certain age. I'm cooked, not getting any more cooked. And I'm not like, I'm not uncooking. I don't totally believe that. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a choice. I believe that's a choice. Yeah. When I, when I, there are some people in my life who are completely set in their ways and, and I, I love these people dearly and there's no, there's nothing I can do. There's nothing within my power to encourage them to change if there's no desire on their part. And, and it just reinforces the idea that I'm the only person I'm in charge of. I totally agree. And I, I definitely have those people in my life. Yeah. And also I, you know, in my, when I'm in my higher self, I can choose how I experience them. Mm -hmm. I can choose how I show up. I can also be self-protective and limit exposure to things that will create an environment that I don't yet have the tools to withstand. Mm, I may develop said. them over time and I, I've gotten like they have developed over time and I believe they will continue to develop over time. Mm-hmm. It's okay to have limits. Yeah. Boundaries are important to self-preservation and peace of mind. If, if you, you, know, and, you can't function yeah. when you are in overwhelm, when you are in fight or flight, freeze or fawn, you can't function when all you're thinking of is, is how you're going to withstand being in the same room sometimes. You know, it's interesting. I, I, in working with writers often in that excavation, I will say, tell me more about that. I want to know more about this. And, and sometimes it's tied to trauma. And I will also say in those situations, to the degree that you want to. Yeah, it's always a choice. right? And what invariably happens is over time, they start to explore it more and express it more. And what they find is rather than it necessarily raising the trauma and and increasing the hold, it it releases it. Yeah, it's carving off chunks of it. And their work gets richer and better mm-hmm. and more interesting and more truthful. Yeah. And then people give them that feedback. I really related to this. I really connected. I'm so appreciative. 
And then it's like a joyful experience. And then it's like, it starts to propel itself. Right. And that can be harder to do. I think in a, in sort of the vacuum of interpersonal relationships (laughs) where you don't necessarily get that, that feedback loop um, or one that's satisfying, but you can also hold two things at once, right? You can hold that, that idea. My parents did the best they could, right? Let's take that one. When you hear all the time, you can hold my parents did the best they could along with, and I wish that things had been different and their best still left a hole. Yeah. And what does that mean? I'm responsible for filling it, right? Like I I sometimes say to a certain someone in my life, like, what is the statute of limitations on blaming your parent? (laughs) 80 years. Like, is there a statute of limitations on this? Like, and I get it. Like, trauma is trauma and it stays with you and it sticks with you. But at some point, you could make a choice Mm -hmm. how you are going to handle that. Mm -hmm. Oh, I love that. Statue of limitations. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And again, like, I haven't figured this out, but I feel like I enjoy the process of figuring it out and I have found that in the work I do with writers I I try and bring all this because it's important and I have people who are published and writing to publish and I have people who are writing just to find themselves and yeah. neither one of those things has more value than the other yeah yeah it sounds like you are using writing as an additional therapeutic tool to one's own seeking and one's own natural curiosity. Yeah. And I feel like I, and I, I focus it on the creativity, right? So we always talk about the narrator and the characters, whether it's the real person or not, because it doesn't actually matter. And I really try and focus on the finding your genius in writing and, and getting away from the story you think you, you should be telling into the one that's like waiting to be told and all of these things. Right. Because I am not a therapist and I don't approach it as therapy. But what I find is people have this therapeutic value in it and they they find that it actually benefits other aspects of their lives in addition to making them better writers, giving them a space to explore and expand their creativity and in all of those like lovely, juicy things that we look for. Wonderful. So if somebody were listening now and says, oh my gosh, I would love to use writing as this tool and and Leslie just sounds amazing, how do they get in touch with you? First, I want to say thank you um, for feeling that way. So my website is leslieberliant.com, L-E-S-L-I-E-B-E-R-L-I-A-N-T.com. And on there, you'll find different ways you can work with me. I, I run weekend and week-long retreats. I have six-week um, writing classes that happen on Zoom. So I've had people and have people log in from Europe, from South America, all over the U.S., and you can sign up for the six-week classes online or to work with me one-on-one. I work with writers, screenwriters, people who are just kind of seeking and maybe want to use writing in some way along with other modalities. You know, I, I love helping people find those tools for that excavation, whether it's in a purely creative piece fictional piece or something that is more autobiographical. I think in all of those realms, we're finding things about ourselves. 
Wonderful, wonderful. Well, thank you. Thank you very much for sharing your wisdom. This has been awesome. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And I'm looking forward to connecting with your audience and with you more. Yes, definitely. For more good juju, visit cami.coach, C-A-M-I dot coach. 